0: Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 25. I'll get you the microphone, Kimberly. There you go. There we go. This is God's holy inspired word.
1: Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours and whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses Thanks,
0: let's pray father thank you for your Holy Scripture thanks for your word for inspiring mark to write your words God, we celebrate what you did on that day over 2,000 years ago. And God, I pray that you would make your words alive to us afresh today. That we would see the triumphant Jesus, even if it's the Jesus we don't expect, that we would see him for who he is. And I pray, God, that we would have faith in you, for you to move mountains. God, I pray that you would speak through me, Lord. Would you enable me and empower me by your Holy Spirit? Would you enable each and every person here to be able to hear from you by your Spirit? Lord, let's be attentive to your words. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I want you to think for a moment and consider a question, what what do you want from life? Think about it. What What do you want from life? Or maybe what do you think you need in life? Now, 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 I'm not asking what you what the right answer is, or for you to give the Christian answer, or for you to give the answer that, hey, because somebody's gonna ask me, don't worry, I'm not gonna ask you to stand up and tell people what you really want in life, what you think you need. But if I want you to be honest with yourself and think for a moment, what is it that I really want in life? What am I looking for? What do I think I need in life? What comes to mind? Not the churchy answer, not the I need to try to be holy and think what's the right answer is, but what What's your first answer when you think, what do I want in life, what do I need in life? Maybe you want a sense of purpose, maybe you want to feel like your life's worthwhile. Maybe you want an absence of conflict and a sense of peace. Maybe you want somebody to love, as the song says. Maybe you want a degree or a job or career. Maybe you want to feel like you have value. Maybe you want to feel like you have worth. Maybe that's what you want in life. Or maybe you want health and well-being because you're really struggling right now. Those are all honest things to desire. Maybe you want to be comfortable, or maybe you're just like probably most of us. You just want things to go your way. I don't know about you, but I I want things to go my way. You know, maybe if I ask a different question though, like what do you expect in life? Or what did you expect in life? If you're a little older, you're, you're nearing the later years. What do you expect in life? What did you expect in life? Might be a different answer. Things might have turned out a different way, or you might be expecting something in life that if you ask an older person, they might say, you know what? I didn't expect I would be here. I didn't expect I would have done these things. I was looking for something else. You know, but sometimes what we expect in life, what we think we need in life, is not truly what we need. I think we know that. You know, today is the day that Christians the world over have celebrated Palm Sunday for thousands of years. They've celebrated the fact that that Jesus came in to establish his kingdom, to begin his reign and his rule. And it was just a week before he would give his life. That's why we celebrate today, is this is the, the triumphant entry, really, historically, of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And he is preparing, and he's heading in knowingly, willingly, heading in to give his life... Friday, and he's going to die, and he knows he's going to be raised again on Sunday. But he wasn't the kind of king that people expected. He, he didn't give them what they thought they needed or what they wanted. He didn't fulfill their expectations in the way they thought he should. Even in this triumphant entry, there, there is a bit of unexpectedness. Where Jesus surprises, he doesn't give people what they want, he doesn't give people what they think they need, instead he gives them what they truly need. He wasn't the kind of king they expected, and sometimes it's true for us. Sometimes if you are a Christian, you expect God to do for you things that he doesn't. Maybe you're wanting things from God. Maybe you're wanting his kingdom to look a certain way. Yeah, Jesus says that that's not what he came for. He came to establish his kingdom to give you what you truly need. Jesus is exactly the king that we need to bring about the kingdom that's truly best for us, even if he's not the king that we expect. And let me tell you, Jesus is unexpected. He's unexpected. The disciples, they had been with Jesus, and leading up to Mark, they've been with Jesus for over three years. They lived with him, they ate with him, they they walked wherever he walked. But he was always surprising them. And I want you to think about the surprising Jesus. You know, they didn't expect Jesus to provide for over 5,000 people at a sitting. They were shocked when Jesus created food. He was the creator on multiple occasions. He creates food for thousands of people. He makes something from nothing. He's unexpected. They didn't expect that Jesus would go to people who were poor and needy. They expected that Jesus would go to the religious elite, to the wealthy, to the influential. And instead we see the exact opposite. Unlike rulers today who only hang out with important influential people, Jesus was unexpected, right? He hung out with the poor, with prostitutes, with thieves. Jesus was unexpected and traitors. They didn't expect him to heal everybody who came to him. They didn't expect him to calm a storm with a word, they thought. They were going to die. And yet Jesus gets up and says, peace be still, and the storm's calmed. They didn't expect Jesus to walk on water when they were in the middle of of the Sea of Galilee, and another storm was raging, and they see him coming on the water. They didn't expect it. Jesus was not the king they expected. And yet they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand they saw him do all those things. They believed he was the Messiah, God's chosen king, bring about God's kingdom, but they didn't expect him to die. Even though, just prior to this passage that Kimberly just read for us, just prior to this, Jesus has told them in Mark 10, we have that for you in the overheads, on Mark 10, Jesus told them, he says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. They didn't expect, though, the Messiah to actually die. This is the third occasion that Jesus has directly told them what must happen. That he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be given over. He's going to be flogged. He's going to die. And he's going to rise again. And in Mark, it's at least three times very clear the first time we see that, that Peter didn't expect it, and so Peter, he corrects Jesus and says, Jesus, by no means, you can't do that. The second time that Jesus tells them the exact same words as we see here in Mark 8 33 and 34, the disciples, they didn't understand them, but they were all too afraid to ask. Like, oh, I'm not going to ask again because maybe they'll tell us that Jesus will tell us we're Satan, you know? We don't want that. They didn't know what to do. And here, after this passage in, in Mark 10, Jesus tells them he's going to be betrayed, he's going to go, he's going to be flogged, he's going to die, he's going to rise again, but they still didn't get it because we see that James and John, they come up to him like, hey Jesus, so when you're reigning, can we sit beside you on the left and right, is that all right?" They still didn't fully get who Jesus was, he wasn't the king they expected. They're expecting the Messiah to come and to establish an earthly kingdom, an earthly rule and reign. And so when he was talking about dying and rising again, they were thought, well, maybe he's talking metaphorically or something. I don't get it because, hey, but Jesus, when you are reigning, can we sit beside you? And then he's heading into the city. And they're expecting him to set up his rule. And we see that in this passage in Mark 11. We see how they respond to him shows what they were expecting, Jesus, he had instructed them to go ahead and to to get a colt, and we see the response to him. We see that they expected him to be the dominant king, to be the Messiah, and the response. They were singing Hosanna to him. They were singing, basically, God help us, God save us, because you can. On this Palm Sunday, they expected Jesus to begin to rule, but he didn't come the way they expected it, and he didn't do what they expected. And this, this passage is actually very surprising. You're thinking, what in the world? This riding into, into Jerusalem on a donkey, what does that have to do with then he, he curses a fig tree, and then what does that have to do with the temple, and he throws people out of the temple, and then he comes back, and this fig tree's dead, and then he talks about faith. How do, what, is, what in the world's going on here, Mark? Even the passage is unexpected to show us who King Jesus is and and the main idea I believe Mark has for us is to show us that Jesus is the King that we truly need even though he may not be the King that we expect. He's the King we truly need even if he's not the King that we expect. What are you expecting from God? What do you expect Jesus to do for you, to be for you? You know, it was clear up to this point in Mark. If you have ever read through the book of Mark, and if you've not, I encourage you to read through it in a sitting if you can. Jesus, it's, it's clear, has all power. He's got all authority, he's got more power than any man who ever lived. And the disciples have seen that spot so far, they've seen him do all kinds of miracles. And now they, they probably believe that he's the Messiah because James and, and John are coming to him and saying, hey, when you were the Messiah, when you reign in, in, in heaven, when you, when you rule and you set up your kingdom here, we want to sit beside you. So they believe he's the Messiah who will ultimately deliver God's people. But it's not like they expect. And we see that in verses one through 10 that, that Jesus is God's long-awaited king and they recognize that. Jesus is God's long-awaited king who will save his people and the people recognize that to begin with. They see that he's the long-awaited king and he's the one who's going to save God's people. If you're reading along, you know Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. He's told him three times that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to rise again. It's kind of surprising then. It, you know, Jesus was human, you have to remember that. He was fully God, he was fully man, but you have to remember he was fully God and he was fully man, right? And as man, if you knew that you were going to go someplace and suffer and die I might avoid that place. How about you? But he doesn't. Well, you know, you think, okay, maybe he'll go the other way. Maybe he'll go somewhere else. Maybe he'll avoid the place where he's actually going to suffer and die. But if he doesn't avoid it, then maybe he'll hide or maybe he'll sneak in the back door and he'll come in for the Passover because he's supposed to as a good Jew and supposed to worship the temple. But maybe he'll sneak in. Maybe he won't be so ostentatious about his arrival. And yet he does the opposite. He's still unexpected. He comes in, and he comes in as loudly and self-consciously as possible. He makes arrangements, not only coming to Jerusalem, but do it in an obvious way. He comes in like a king. And maybe you're thinking, well, how how is a king coming in like a donkey? Well, a donkey was how kings of old would would ride in 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 times of peace. Now, kings of old would ride in in times of war to dominate, to establish, to take over. They would come in in a horse. But in times of peace, they would come in on a donkey. And so Jesus knows that. He sends two of his disciples to go ahead and get a colt that's that's never been ridden before, which which also symbolizes the, the use for it, was sacred, was special. And so they go and they get a colt, and just like Jesus said, they let him take the colt. They go, they find it, they untie it. Now you might wonder why in the world did Jesus do that? Was he just tired? You know, he'd walked all the way from Jerusalem. It was about 25 miles. Was he just tired? And then why did he ride on a donkey? Well, it's important. He was was self consciously coming in as God's long awaited king. Zechariah 9 9, there was a prophecy of the Messiah and how the Messiah would come in. And in Zechariah 9 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king's coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus was self-consciously coming in in fulfillment of this prophecy. He was coming in as the king. He was coming in to bring peace, and he was coming in to establish his dominion from all the ends of the earth people got part of that given the way they respond jesus comes in like a king but he indicated he was coming in like a king that people didn't expect they would have expected a king who was coming to establish authority maybe militarily or through government or overthrowing the romans and he comes in to establish dominion but he does it in a way that's very humble and peaceful they wanted and expected this military victory. The crowd thought he'd take the throne and begin to rule. And Jesus had come to this point demonstrating he had all power over nature. He's got power over sickness. He's got power over life and death. He's got power over demonic forces. He heals all who come. He, he walks in water. He feeds 5,000. He commands the dead to come back to life with a word. This is the all powerful Jesus. He casts out demons. Nothing can stop Jesus. So they're expecting that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take names. He's gonna come and he's gonna get rid of the Romans and all Jesus has to do is just say, dead, to Pilate if he wanted to. He's got power over life and death, the word, they've seen it. He could could tell all the Roman soldiers to go away and they'd have to obey. But he comes in self-consciously as a humble king announcing he's the Messiah. But he's coming in to seek peace to the nations and establish in a way they didn't expect. He knew what was coming, and yet he rides into Jerusalem triumphantly, straight to the place where he knew he'd be sentenced to death, tortured and crucified. And he rode into the acclaim of the people who were certain that he would be their kind of king, but he wasn't the kind of Messiah they thought he'd be. They expected their king to overthrow, to take over, to take charge, to vindicate the Jews, to, to reclaim their land, to rebuild the kingdom, to restore their dignity. If only he would speak. He had the power to change everything and yet he doesn't do it that way. He rides it in a donkey. He accepts rightly their praise of him as king. In other passages in the gospels, we see that the, the priests are saying, hey, why don't you make them be quiet because that praise is only reserved for the Messiah. And he says, no, no. Because if they don't, the rocks will cry out. It's right that they praise me. And yet he does something else. Not only is he the Messiah who comes in to save, but we see something else that we don't expect. Look down at verses eleven nineteen. 19. Jesus does something else unexpected. He demonstrates he's God's unexpected king and he judges people. He judges. He's God's unexpected king who doesn't just come to save, he comes to judge. And the first unexpected thing that we see after Jesus riding in the donkey is he doesn 't go to the seat of power. He goes right to the temple, and that 's kind of strange, isn 't it? You ever experienced a leader who came into power and an earthly leader who came into power and only to be the kind of leader you didn 't expect? You ever had that happen? You ever really hope in somebody, in a leader of some kind, and they don't live up to expectations? You know, I I got to meet a couple of presidents in person and they didn't turn out the way that I expected. They weren't the people I expected them to be. I got to meet Bill Clinton, I got to greet him, I shook his hand, I got to hear him speak at a gathering of a few hundred people. I had heard what he was like, I had heard bad things about him, I I'd heard, you know, just, how terrible he might be and all these opinions about him. And so I had preconceived notions in my head, but when I met him, he was really warm and friendly and I liked him. I didn't want to, I didn't expect to, but I did. And I was surprised at how likable he was in person and how personable he was when he came across and he spoke to a group and I was impressed. Even though I didn't care for his, his personal life and some of the things that went on there. It wasn't what I expected. He had a presidential air and likability. It took me by surprise. And then later I, I, I met, actually before that, sorry, reverse order, I met the George Bush Sr. And the press had made him out to be a wimp of a man back in the early 90s. They said, you know, George Bush was a wimp, the old George Bush, maybe here if you were under 30 you might not remember him, but the older George Bush, George Bush Sr., the press had made him out to be this wimp of a man, and he was cowardly and small, according to the press. And, but when I got to see him in person, he wraps his huge hands around me, and he's standing over six feet, two inches tall, and he's got this huge frame. He's, he's broad, and he's strong, and he's vibrant. He's got this commanding air, this, this presence. He wasn't what I expected. He was imposing. He wasn't wimpy at all, and I would never have thought of calling him a wimp to his face. He was an ex-fighter pilot who got shot down and survived. Then I found out later he used to go running on the track by where I worked every day. He wasn't like I expected. Sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad, sometimes it's surprising when leaders turned out. Sometimes we're disappointed in somebody not being like we expect. Maybe you've hoped in a leader, a pastor, a political representative, a president, they didn't turn out like you expected. Well, notice in verse 11, where Jesus goes is to the temple. That's rather strange for a, for a Messiah in one sense. Now, it's not in, if, you, if you read the Bible and you understand it now in light of who Jesus is as the Messiah. But for the Jews at that time, it was strange. He didn't go to Pilate. He didn't go and establish military rule. He didn't take over. He goes to the temple. And look in verse 11. It says, when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Just triumphant entry, and then he just goes, and he looks around the temple, and he goes out. What's going on? It's not what you'd expect. He comes in, and he takes names. Or maybe he comes in, and he clears the temple that night. No, he doesn't do that. He comes in, and it says something, though. It says he looks around. That's a little unexpected, too. He comes to the temple. That's unexpected, but then he looks around. What's he doing? He's coming in like a king, inspecting his troops. He's coming in like a king, inspecting the barracks, and he says, He's looking around at what what things are really like. This temple is really impressive. The temple is magnificent, but Jesus is not impressed. He comes to the temple and he looks around. He doesn't worship there that night. He doesn't make sacrifice. He doesn't pray. He doesn't stop. He just looks around like a king, inspects the place, and then he goes out. He goes out to stay probably a mile or two away from the city with his 12 disciples for the night. And then notice that Mark does something else strange. Look down your Bibles. In the middle of the account of Jesus, his triumphant entry and him coming to the city and looking at the temple, you might expect something about his reign and his rule. But then Mark tells this story, right? It seems a little strange. It seems like an unrelated story in verses 12 to 14. Look down your Bibles. It's sandwiched in between this account of the triumphant entry of Jesus and then when Jesus comes and he kicks people out of the temple. He comes into the temple and he expects it and he comes back to the temple later and he kicks people out. And in the middle is this story, this weird story we think, this what in the world is this story all about? What's it doing here? Jesus was not only Messiah, the king, he was not only the great high priest, he was also the great prophet. And so Jesus coming in, and then Jesus going out, and him coming in, what he does in verses 12 to 14, it's very similar to Old Testament prophetic pictures. There's different times in the Old Testament, like in Jeremiah, when, when Jeremiah, he goes before the people and he breaks a jar, and it's symbolic of God breaking the people, and then another time, um, Jeremiah does something even more bizarre. He, he goes and buries an undergarment, and he waits for it to rot, and he brings it out, and he shows that that's like the humiliation of God's people. And so there's this pattern of prophetic pictures or prophetic action having another meaning. So I think that's what Jesus is doing here. I believe it's become evident as you look at why does Mark put it here? Why, and by the way, why does Jesus do this? Jesus had to have known, not only was he the creator, but he was also a smart guy. He knew that the figs were not in season. So Mark's kind of giving us a little warning, saying, hey, by the way, the figs were not in season. So Jesus going to look at it. doesn't mean that he was actually expecting figs to be there. He was going in and inspecting the tree. Now you should have a clue already. What did he just inspect the night before? He was going in and inspecting the temple, seeing what was there. Oh, What's Jesus doing? Jesus is giving us an object lesson to the disciples and to us. He goes and he goes over to the fig tree to see if there's fruit on it. And, and the figs, in that day, they would, they would begin to produce figs just before the leaves came out, they' produce these little figs. And so when the leaves were full in the tree, you would expect, if it was the season, that the figs would have produced fruit. In and in a big leafy tree, it looks like a fruitful tree. It looks really good on the outside. So Jesus goes up to this tree and he goes over to inspect the tree and he looks and there, are, there is no fruit present. And he knew that, but what, what did he do? He pronounced judgment on something that looked good on the outside and yet did not produce fruit for God. Now in some sense, even the trees of the field should produce food for the Creator, He had a right to expect fruit, even though it wasn't the season for it in some sense. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to this tree that looks good, that that looks really healthy on the outside from a distance. It looks like it's producing, but up close on further inspection, there's no fruit on this tree. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus curses the tree. And he's, he's showing the disciples something. He teaches them a lesson, and Mark got that later. It's, uh, Peter got that, and so he talked to Mark, and Mark wrote that down, so he understood what was going on. So that's why it's inserted here in the middle. It actually has to do with the temple. Jesus goes and he sees this magnificent temple, full of leaves, if you will. Magnificent. This temple looks good from a distance, but yet when he comes up close and he inspects it, he doesn't find fruit. And now you have a little foreboding for what's about to happen, why Mark goes back and shows what Jesus does to the temple. Jesus curses the fig tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then we see next, he comes back and he deliberately does what? He carries out justice in the temple. He went the night before, he inspects the temple, he comes back. On the way back to the temple, he's heading to the temple. He curses this fig tree. And then he goes in and he judges not just the fig tree, but he judges the temple. That's what Jesus is doing. He's judging. He's pronouncing his judgment. His intent was clear. He didn't pause. He didn't hesitate. He came right back in. He saw that the the temple was not bearing fruit for God. And it says, as soon as he entered the temple, he began to drive out the people who were buying and selling. The place where God was supposed to be worshipped become a place of business. His intent was clear he was coming as the king and Messiah to judge. He kicked the people out of the temple. You know it says when Jesus cleansed, you know, the, in a lot of Bibles they have the header, Jesus cleanses the temple. That is not strong enough. Jesus kicks people out of the temple. Jesus says no, this will not happen. He does cleanse the temple, but he also symbolically kicks them out. And he wouldn't allow anybody to do work in the temple. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, not business and burdens. And just like he was kicking out the merchants who the priests had set up, he was also saying, your time has come. Now your whole establishment, what you've established, I'm taking out of here. And that frightened them. And then notice what he's teaching. Look in verse 7 and 18, 17 and 18. Says as he was teaching him, saying, is, is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? There's something important there in Jesus' words. Why is he teaching that? What is Mark trying to show us here? He said, But you made it in robbers, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. The chief priests and the scribes, they got that Jesus was judging them. And they wanted to kill him because of that. They were putting two and two together. Jesus is coming and he's claiming authority and he's judging us and we want to kill him because he's trying to get rid of what we've established. And then it's also important to note that they assumed they assumed that they had a place that could not be taken away and they also assumed that the Gentiles were not welcome because where they set up their place of business was likely in that outer court why Jesus kicked them out. They were in the temple. They were probably not in the sanctuary. They knew better than that. They probably weren't even in the court of the Jews. They knew better than that. So they probably most likely put these business in the outside court, which was the court of the Gentiles, which was supposed to be what? A prayer for the nations, a place of prayer for the nations. That's why Jesus says, my house shall be a house for the prayer for the nations in the court of the Gentiles. He but you're assuming that only you have a right. And they were making a place where the Gentiles couldn't come in because there was money changers and business activities, and the Gentiles, they couldn't, they couldn't, there was no place of prayer for the nations. They presumed on God that they were worthy, the Gentiles weren't, and Jesus is judging them. They take in the place of prayer and made the house of God like a den of thieves, He wasn't just complaining when he called it that. He was actually quoting from Jeremiah. And the verses that follow God promises in that when Jesus quotes Jeremiah right after that in the context of what he quoted, the verses that he quoted from the very next verses in Jeremiah seven thirteen, 13, he says, and now because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, therefore I'll do to all the house that is called by my name in which you trust and the place I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight. That's what Jesus was doing. He's fulfilling scripture. He's coming in as the Messiah to judge. He's casting them out of the temple, out of God's sight. And it's likely they knew that because later they actually accused Jesus falsely that he threatened to tear down the temple. They were clearly offended. They wanted to kill him. Jesus was alluding to his pending judgment on the temple. The temple would be destroyed. He would cast the people out of the sight. God would separate himself from his people. And then right after this, we come back to the account of the fig tree. And that's how we know something else is going on here. Okay, there's a, Mark is doing something here. These things are all related. They're not unrelated. That when the New Testament authors wrote the Bible, it wasn't just writing history In a line, they were writing things and what they included was for a reason. So, right after this, Jesus goes out and look in verse 20. It says, they passed by in the morning. They saw the withered fig tree, saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and he said, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed, it's withered! What they're showing us is that the judgment of Jesus is sure. What Jesus does what he says his judgment will come to pass so jesus sees something that looks magnificent on the outside that's not producing fruit and he curses it and then his judgment is sure what he pronounces will surely come to pass and that's should scare all of us in one sense jesus is not just the king who comes to save jesus is the king who comes to judge and when he doesn't find fruit he judges and his judgment is sure You can look good on the outside. You can look impressive. But if you're not bearing fruit for God, there's judgment. Boy, Jesus isn't the kind of king that they expected. They didn't expect the Messiah to kick people out of the temple. They didn't expect the Messiah to bring judgment like this on his own people. They thought he would judge the, the Romans. What's the first thing? He comes to the temple to God's own people and he begins, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And just like no one would eat from the fig tree ever again, Israel would no longer bear fruit to feed the nations. The temple, the people of God, were no longer bringing fruit for God. And just like Jesus expelled the merchants, he's expelling the establishment that put them in their place from their lack of, from their place of privilege. The tree is stricken, the temple system, the entire system of sacrifice is about to go away completely. It's about to be withered to its roots. The eradication of the temple was scary for the Israelites. It meant that they were in trouble. Why? Because part of the promise is that God would bring his people into his place. And into a place where they could be in fellowship and relationship and communion with him. And into a place where they could have their sins atoned for. And if Jesus was pronouncing judgment on the temple, if this whole sacrificial system was going away, then they were in trouble. Who would atone for their sins? Who would take care of their problems? How could they be near God? You have a king who judges and he's not interested in pretense or outward formalities, not looking for people who look good on the outside, for just mere religious observance or sacrifice. The people of God didn't have the temple and the sacrificial system. They were in serious trouble because that's the only way their sins could be covered. It was the only place they could be drawn near to God, be reconciled to him and receive his favor if that went away, they knew that they would be under a mountain of God's wrath. And they couldn't come into his presence. They couldn't receive mercy. They couldn't receive help. And that's, that's, that's meant to affect you. If any of us are to be judged on the merits of our own ability to produce fruit, that should make us frightened. Because none of us can produce fruit on our own. If any of us are judged in that way and we have taken away from us the presence of God, taken away from us the ability to be forgiven, that's, that's frightening. The idea of that sacrificial system being cursed and dying meant that there was this mountain of sin that could no longer be atoned for through the temple. You know, for us, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you have, and all of us at one point have had, a mountain of sin. Far more than we can take care of. And we were in dire straits. No way to escape. No way out. No way to appeal to God to stay his judgment. No way to be rescued. And the expulsion from the temple, the curse from the fig tree shows us that God's judgment's sure. And then in Jesus' death and resurrection, as we'll see in a week from now, one of the things that's really telling is when Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two. It was the beginning of doing away with the temple for good. But there's reassurance for them, for the disciples in this passage and there's reassurance for us in this passage too. Where do we find reassurance? How in the world is the other part of this scripture related? Okay, so Jesus comes in triumphant on his donkey. He comes in, he goes to the temple and then he goes, he expects things. He doesn't find what he wants. He goes out, he cursed the fig tree. He comes back in, he pronounces judgment on the temple and then they see that his judgment's sure. And then we have this passage that we don't understand. Jesus is talking about faith. What in the world's going on here? I think Jesus is bringing this reassurance that yes, he's the king who saves, yes, he's the king who judges, but he is the trustworthy king who can move mountains. That's what we see. Jesus is the trustworthy king who moves mountains. If you just read verses 22 to 25 out of context, not in this context, and by the way, after these verses, we just don't have time to do the rest, Jesus is back in the temple again talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He's talking to them about his authority. So this is in the context still of Jesus in the temple and judgment and Jesus' authority. And so in the middle of all this, Jesus starts talking about faith. So you might think, wait, wait, wait a minute, what is this a weird teaching all of a sudden just pops up about faith? Has Mark lost his mind? Well, no, he hasn't. He, he's writing in this context about faith in God, faith in the Messiah who saves, faith in the Messiah who judges, and even in the midst of judgment, we can have faith in God. He's a trustworthy King. He can move mountains. Look in look in verse twenty three. He says, "If you say this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, anybody who says be, take, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him." Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. It seems almost too good to be true, right? And what in the world is he talking about mountains? What is this mountain that he's talking about? Well, it's in the middle of this passage where he's making the point about the long-awaited king who comes to save and judge. We find these verses. And although Jesus is the king who comes to judge the people, there is hope. If we believe in him, we don't doubt in our hearts, but believe when he says will come to pass, it will be done if we ask in prayer, believe we've received it, and it will be yours. What's Jesus talking primarily about, I think, in these verses is he's talking about believing that God is the God who can rescue, who can move mountains. God is the God who can forgive. If you look at the context of what kind of prayers, when you pray, forgive others so that your Father in heaven may forgive you, and, and the, con- the assumption there, I, I believe, is that you're praying for forgiveness How do do I think that? Why do I think that? Well, Zechariah is the the passage that that Jesus came in on a donkey. He's being heralded in Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 14, the children of Israel, they faced a terrible day of judgment. The king was coming to judge them in Zechariah 14. And, And it tells us about that in verse 1 and 2. It talks about this judgment that God would bring through other nations. And he says, Behold, a day is coming from the Lord when the spoil taken will be taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. This is God judging. And the city will be taken. God's promised place? And the houses plundered and the women raped and half the city shall go out into exile. Oh, what will happen now? This horrific judgment we see. But there's hope because the next verse is in Zechariah, right after God talking about this horrific judgment with God casting out half of his people and, and these horrible things happening and the city's taken and the house is plundered. There's hope, there's hope in the Messiah. In Zechariah fourteen three. right after that, even though he's the one who judges, he's also the one who will fight for them and provide a way of escape. And the language that he uses is very similar to the language we have in Mark. He says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. This is a bizarre imagery, right? So we have this Messiah, the Lord, the Rescuer coming. He's judging, and then he comes to rescue his own people. And how does he do it? The people are surrounded. They, they are taken away. They're, they're, they're surrounded on all sides by their enemies. And what does is, what is the Messiah do here? It says he stands with one foot on the Mount of Olives and the other foot on the other side and where there is no way, he parts the mountain. He says so that one half of the mountain shall be moved northward and the other half southward. He's moving the mountain. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountain so the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azal and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzzah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And the people are surrounded with no way out. God promises to move the mountain, the Mount of Olives that Jesus was most likely looking at. He destroys his enemies. He brings about his perfect kingdom. A few verses later in Zechariah 14:8, it says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. I think in context of Mark and with the references to Zechariah, I think that what Jesus is talking about when he says, whoever says this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, he doesn't doubt, but believes what he says will come to pass and be done for him. He's probably referring to his ability to move mountains to rescue his people. Have faith, trust in God to do the impossible, to move mountains to save you. When you are surrounded by a mountain of your sin, when there is no hope for you, when the entire sacrificial system seems like it's going to go away because he's going to do away, when he casts the people out, there is still hope in the midst of the king who judges. The king who judges is the king who rescues. Verse 23 seems to be the reason for verse 24. If you believe in God that he'll move mountains for you, then whatever you ask in prayer, believe it will be done and it will be done. And the connotation is that what you're praying for is God's rescue. His rescue from his own judgment, rescue from your sin, for God to move the impossible mountain of sin. For God to provide a way of escape when there's no other way of escape. For God to do what only he can do. When we pray to God in faith, it's not that God, give me the ability to move my mountain. It's no, God, do what only you can do. In verse 25, it says, when you pray, forgive others, suggesting that we're praying about forgiveness, asking God to forgive our sins for God to save us. So what's the effect of these verses? Have faith that Jesus is the king who comes to save, he's the king who comes to judge, and he's the king who's trustworthy, who can rescue you and move mountains. And God provided the rescue in Jesus himself and there's, there's some imagery in Zechariah of the, of the Lord standing between the mountains and the people flee between him. The people flee through him. And so Jesus is saying, have faith. I'm the one through whom there's rescue. How do we respond to this unexpected king from this Palm Sunday passage? How do we respond? If if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then what you are facing is a mountain of God's wrath. Judgment and just judgment, right judgment for your sins. And the only way that can be taken care of is if you place your faith in God. God, would you remove this mountain of your wrath from me? Lord, would you save me? And I believe that you will. And if you believe in him, he will do it. Pray, and God will forgive you. He's the humble king who comes to bring peace through himself. He boldly faced death for us and he can move the mountain of sin in our lives. Believe in Jesus and he'll do it for you like it says in verse 24. Faith's not something we have in ourselves. for all of us. It's getting a hold of God and who God is. It's, It's giving up trusting in yourself. It's trusting in God to do what he's promised if you are a believer here look back and reflect on the fact that Jesus has moved a mountain where there was no way he made a way when you were dead in sins he made you alive only God does that and he's able to move mightily on your behalf he's the faithful king who saves who judges and who rescues and he's brought his kingdom and I, I love that we, we sang that song earlier about his kingdom coming We can pray now with confidence, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done, even though we don't see how. Would you move the mountain and believe it, and and he will. We can pray for forgiveness, and we can forgive other people. What we need in our life is for Jesus to come and break onto the scene. We need this disruptive King Jesus. We need the authority of King Jesus. We need his kingdom. We need his rule, his peace, his power. We need him. We need him to bring his kingdom. We need to see the unexpected Jesus who doesn't conform to our image but conforms us into his image. And that might seem like it's insurmountable to you but if you have faith in God, he can make all of us into his image and he says he's doing that. See the Jesus who wants us to have faith in him because he is the king and he moves mountains if we believe in him. Amen? Well, let's pray, and then if we could sing in response, that would be great.